verse 7 through 14. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 14 of the book of Colossians. And we read, Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. And they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, and he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before your presence, your eternal glory, this morning once again, reasoning in our minds and knowing that you have spoken to us once and for all through your word, the Bible. And we pray, dear God, now that you would give us spiritual eyes and hearts to understand, oh Lord, what it is you would like us to hear today. We pray that, that our minds would comprehend these words, that we would not just see them merely as letters written to other people, but as a love letter written to your people. Oh God, may we decipher the text and apply it to our hearts, and may we grow rich in our understanding of the will that you have for us. Holy Spirit, please empower my mind and my lips and anoint me and use me as a vessel for your honor and glory. And we pray that you would illuminate to us today your revealed will and that we would be convicted and that we would come under your authority. In Christ's name, amen. Um, We live in a world where often we are caught up in what I like to call celebrity culture. We are a celebrity-obsessed culture, in fact. Uh, Social media and the news media, and prior to all that, back in the 80s and 90s, before the advent of the internet, we had tabloids, which still exist on the racks of supermarkets, but were all the range when I grew up. We like to know what the rich and famous are doing. We like to know what the famous actors are doing There was a lot of attention around the coronation of King Charles this week and the outfits that people wore to this regal event. We're fascinated with the stars of society, whether they be big-name sports players, national politicians, or famous movie actors who headline blockbuster movies. Unfortunately, the same attitude exists also in the church where we make big deals of other human beings and we have the celebrity pastor culture, and we see this quite often as well. 
And so there are many gifted men who God has given to the church, and we don't deny that. We don't, we don't say make a little of it. We, we are thankful and we are blessed when we see God raise up men like Billy Graham or, or men like John MacArthur or raise up the D.L. Moody's and Spurgeons of the 19th century whose legacy still lasts to today. However, we do well to recognize and understand that behind all of the great movers and shakers of God's church throughout redemption history, there are always the little people who are nameless, who we don't know, and who are faceless, who allow these men to do what they do. And if it wasn't for the little people, these big men wouldn't be able to do nothing. Did you ever go to a, a blockbuster movie like, let's say, a, a Marvel movie like The Avengers or, or one of the uh, recent Marvel movies and you go and you sit in a theater and you wait for the end credit scene. It's the tag scene. It's become the tradition of those movies that you sit through the credits to wait to see that tag scene that will kind of give you a preview of the next movie in the series. Well, in those end credits, you see a list of long names that you never read through, but think of there are thousands, thousands and thousands, if not more, of names that are rolling on that screen continually of all the people that made that production possible. You never see them, you don't know their names, but that movie doesn't depend on Robert Downey Jr. or Chris Evans. It depends on all the little people to make it work. And that's the same thing with the kingdom of God. And that's what I want you to see in today's message. I want you to see that we all have different roles. We all have different parts to play in the kingdom of God. And no matter how big your role is or how small your role is, we all have a contribution to make to the church. We all have a contribution to make to the kingdom of God. No one is seen as a lesser individual. And as we look here in our text, we know that Paul is the center figure in this letter. He is the one writing. He is the one who wrote most of the letters in the Bible. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. And when we think of God's work in the first century, we think of the New Testament, we think of the missionary uh, uh, journeys of the book of Acts, we think Paul. But behind Paul, there were a lot of other men and women who made his ministry possible. So with that said, we're going to look at different people that were part of the team. I like to think of Paul's team as a ministry team. And like any missionary who goes out into the mission field, you have a team of people around you, people that are going to support you. When you plant a church, you have a church planting team. You have people with different gifts and different abilities that sit out. You just don't go and plant the church mindlessly. There has to be a plan in place with the people who are able to do certain things. In the same way, the Apostle Paul surrounds himself with men, men who are instrumental in assisting him in the task of getting out the gospel, of building out the kingdom, of planting churches, and of preaching the gospel. And it's, we have to recognize that we are to honor such men. So let's look at a list of these team players and those who are part of the team and how they make the work of Paul's ministry possible. Number one, uh, and I may have pronounced it wrong, Tychicus. I would say, like, say Tychicus Ty, Ty, or Tychicus um, as we, we look at his name. Now, now, he's the first person mentioned here in Paul's letter, and we're going to look at several names, but he is important because he is the one who's been the courier. He is the one who is tasked 
with delivering. This book of Colossians was originally a letter by Paul written to the church of Colossae to address the matters and issues of the church. And he was the one tasked with delivering the letter. There was no email. There were no text messages. There was no mailman. There was simply those who were tasked with the job of delivering a letter. And he was the man. He was also sent with Onesimus, and we're going to look at him in a moment. So these two men were sent together to be the, the ones to bring the word of Paul to the church. Not only the written word, which would become a book in the Bible, but he also comes to tell them what is going on in the life of Paul. He's there to communicate and tell them all the news about me, Paul says. This was personal. It wasn't merely a theological communication, but it was a personal communication. And Tychicus and, and Onesimus are going to be the ones to, to sit there and to discuss and to talk with the people there of what's going on in Paul's life. Now remember, Paul is under trial. He's in prison and he is going through the thick of it. He's probably in Caesarea at this point. And knowing from the book of Acts, he was hung up there for a few years at least uh, in trial People were interested. What's going on? I mean, just think about it. We live in a 24-hour news cycle. If you want to know what's going on, you just go on your phone. You go to a news website. We have constant feed of what's going on in the world around us, what's going on in society. In the ancient world, you had to wait months to hear news. As long as it took Tychicus and Onesimus to walk from Caesarea to Colossae, it was as long as you had to wait to hear what was going on shows you how much we are, we are shaped and molded in this idea of instant gratification of having everything yesterday. All that we would learn to be more patient. So anyway, he is not only the courier, he is the reporter, and he's coming back to the church of Colossae. Now, Tychicus is mentioned in Acts chapter 20 as an Asian native. He is from Ephesus, and we can probably deduce that he was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. As one of those converts on his Gentile mission in Asia Minor, he would accompany Paul along with several other Christians to Jerusalem to present the gift to the churches there. Based on the fact that he's still with Paul, we can assume that he, along with Luke and others, stayed with Paul during his time in Caesarea in imprisonment, and he would be the perfect ambassador to go back to Asia Minor, and report on what's going on. There's a few things we have to see that Paul describes about Tychicus that are so important to stand out. Number one, he's a beloved brother. He's a beloved brother. Now, I think this is so important because what it's saying is that this is someone that not only do we trust in this position, but we love him. There is a love that we have for this brother. He is beloved not just by me, but he's beloved by the church. He's beloved by you in Colossae. He's beloved by those in Ephesus. And how many people can say they are beloved? There are many people who may be famous. There are many people who may have positions of power. There are many people who have positions of authority. And they long to be loved, but they're not. You see, being loved is something that comes along with when you love others. When you have the love of Christ and when you're someone who puts the needs and the wants and the desires of others ahead of yourself and you're someone who shows love, you will receive love. But when you're someone who's self-centered and selfish and self-serving, generally people will not like you. 
And so this tells us a lot about the man is that he was like Jesus. He walked like Christ. He was selfless. He was a man who demonstrated great love. And as a result, he was beloved by the church. Secondly, he's a faithful minister. The word minister literally means servant, someone who serves tables, a deacon. And Tychicus has proven himself as a man to the people. He's proven himself as a man that they could trust. He's faithful. That word faithful is important because it means trustworthy. It means reliable. It means dependable. There are many people in churches who are greatly gifted. There are many people in churches who have a lot of potential and have a lot of, uh, 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 of talent. But if you're not reliable and you're not trustworthy and you're not dependable, you're not useful. In fact, I would say more important than ability is dependability. I will take the dependable person any day over the person who's able and can't be relied upon and can't be trusted. And that was something about Tychicus. Tychicus had proven himself to be a reliable person, to be someone you could depend on. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. So I know if I send this letter to Colossae, he's going to do it. And thirdly, he is a fellow servant of the Lord. Paul is acknowledging here that he's no better than Tychicus. They're equals. He and Tychicus both share the same title. They are servants of Christ. And that's what I meant before when I said none of us are greater or lesser than each other. We are all servants of Jesus Christ. Whether you're here in the pulpit or whether you're serving food in the basement, you're, it does not matter what your role is. We are all serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That means we're his servants. We belong to him. We're his property. Right? I don't, I don't have uh, ownership of the church. This is Christ's church. I think so often we hear, oh, that's uh, Bob's church, or that's Ed's church, or that's Jim's church, and we refer to the possessive pronoun or the possessive name, proper name, to describe a church. No, it's the Lord's church in whom Bob is a steward, in whom Ed is a steward, in whom Jim is a steward. We have to see that we're all fellow servants of Jesus Christ. What was his purpose to go there? That he may report how you are to bring the letter and that they may be encouraged. If I want to see someone be encouraged, I send the person who is reliable, who has a servant's heart, and someone who is a minister and who loves the people and who is beloved. And that's the man that Paul chose to be the one to spearhead this uh, uh, ministry, to go back to Colossae and to report to them. Now, I want to say this is important because while we have been greatly blessed going through Colossians, I almost want to go through the book again. It was so rich. It was so encouraging. I'm sad it's over. Um, I mean, just think about all we saw on the, the person of Christ, on the theology of high Christology or, or the ethical results of that. What good would it be to us if Tychicus never delivered the letter? We wouldn't have it if Tychicus didn't deliver the letter. And that just goes to show you that it's the small parts, it's the small roles in, in the church that make possible the bigger things that take place. We all have a part in the kingdom, no matter how significant it is. You know the old saying, for want of a nail, right? For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. And for want of a rider, 
the battle was lost. It starts with the nail, but if you don't have the nail, you won't win the battle. That's why I want to encourage you, never, ever minimize what you do. Never minimize your role in the kingdom. And there are times where we will have great opportunities to serve God and we'll have great roles. And there are times where God may set us aside for a season and we may have to do smaller things. But whatever your role is, it is, it is to be to glorify God. It's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. Amen. Number two, Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is someone we are not aware of yet. And I say yet because we are going to be discussing him as we jump into the book of Philemon. Now, Philemon is a letter that, that most likely Tychicus was also bearing. Scholars believe he was bearing the letter to the church of Ephesus, the letter to the church of Colossae, and the letter to Philemon, which we will read in, or we will go dive into our next sermon series. It's a very small book. It's one of the smallest books in the Bible. It's the smallest book in the New Testament. And in it is a letter to this man, Philemon. He is a member of the church of Colossae. And it just so happens to be that Onesimus is Philemon's slave, or was his slave, I should say. Onesimus had run away. We don't know all the details of it, but if we read into Philemon, when we get into it, we'll discover that at one time, um, and this was after Philemon was converted, Onesimus uh, fled, he left, and he wasn't saved, Onesimus. He, he fled and he left, but at some point he discovered the Apostle Paul, he heard the gospel, he got saved, and he become, became part of Paul's entourage. And Paul writes a letter back to Philemon, and he's sending Onesimus back to Colossae with the intention that Philemon would receive him back, not as a household slave, but as a brother in the Lord. This shows a lot about Paul's view. And when he says in Christ, there are no male or female, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian or Jew or Gentile, but all are one in Christ, he really meant it. He really believed in it. And so, you know, often we'll hear the thing, well, how come the apostles, how come the church didn't do more to fight slavery in the first century? Because that wasn't the agenda and that wasn't the call that Christ had given. The call was to preach the gospel and to make disciples of men, and by implanting the, the truth of God's word and the gospel in the men's hearts, that eventually men and women who know Jesus Christ would reject slavery. But it would take a long time. It was an institution baked into an imperial society that you cannot just change overnight. This was not a democracy. This was an empire. And Paul was not called to overthrow the empire. He was called to preach the kingdom of God. And in that sense, within the church, you could see that there's already developing uh, an understanding of how we are all made equal in the eyes of God. Paul not only sends Onesimus with Tychicus, validating his equality as someone who is seen as recognizable in Paul's sight, but he is someone that Paul will describe later in Philemon as his spiritual son, Philemon 10, a man who diligently served Paul in his prison, and now Paul was willing to give surety and repay Philemon any money that, that Onesimus may have taken from him in verses 17 through 19. And so this man also goes along, and he's described as like, just like Brother Tychicus, faithful and beloved. 
He's trusted and he's loved by the church. So Paul chooses two men to represent him, to go to the church. One man who was formerly a slave, ran away, became converted. He's sending him back to Colossae to his master that they would be received as brothers in Christ and no longer have a slave-master relationship. But also, this man, Tychicus, together they go, they're trust, they're loved, and they go to tell the church everything that's taking place in Paul's imprisonment. It's amazing. And this tells us this is a real picture of the kingdom of God. It's a picture of how in the kingdom, uh, um, not only does nobody have an insignificant role, but that we're all one in Christ and, and that we all have an equal standing before the Christ. What matters not so much is who you were, where you're from, but it's, it's, the, it's your character. It's who you are as a person. It's as you're following Jesus and reflecting him, the more and more you show prominence in the church. Finally, we realize that God calls sometimes the nobodies to accomplish his purpose. Onesimus wasn't a great big person. He wasn't someone with power, not with money, not with riches. And yet, Paul trusted him. He trusted him. And that's a reminder that God doesn't need our power. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our talent. What God wants is our hearts. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing, the things that are, so that no human being may boast in his presence. Amen? God doesn't need people who are boastful and arrogant. He wants humble servants. You could take a man like Onesimus and make him a powerful player in the kingdom of God. And there are plenty of nameless, faceless people throughout redemption history who God has used to do great things. Thirdly, we look at those who send their greetings from the church. We have a group of Jews and Gentiles combined here, three Jews and three Gentiles. And we begin in verse 10, and Paul describes those who send greetings. And again, another mixture of people and showing different team players and how they're participating in the work of the ministry. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now, Aristarchus, we do not know much about. We do know he's one of the three Jewish people, including Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, we'll look at in a second, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, Aristarchus, we do not know much about. Acts 19.29 tells us he was a target of the silversmith who protested and, and threw Ephesus into a riot when Paul was preaching the gospel. Remember, Paul was preaching the gospel, people were getting converted, they were burning their magic books. The silversmith said, hey, this keeps up, we'll be out of business. And so they, they had a riot in Ephesus and they wanted to kill and, and, and to capture Paul and whoever Christians there were and, and bring them under uh, um, you know, a threat of violence. And so Aristarchus was one of the men who was the target of this angry mob. Uh, in Acts chapter 24, he is listed with Tychicus as one of the members of Paul's ministry team traveling with him back to Jerusalem. So he went with Tychicus and Paul to Jerusalem when Paul was arrested. He would have been there when Paul was arrested. And in Acts chapter 27, verse 2, he 
he is described to us as a Thessalonian. So we know that he's from Thessalonica. We know that he was converted under Paul's ministry. He follows Paul to Ephesus and he follows Paul to Jerusalem. And like Paul, he is also arrested when Paul comes under arrest in Jerusalem. That is the interesting thing here. There is nothing more that we know about him that he was arrested. Imagine that, to be known for nothing else other than the fact that you were arrested for the sake of Jesus Christ. It may seem like a nameless, faceless nobody, but I can tell you there are countless and thousands of people right now in the world and through redemption history who've been arrested and imprisoned for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it may like seem that they are making any difference for the Lord, but God knows them dearly. We may not have our names recorded for those who've been arrested and persecuted for the sake of Christ in the Bible to be read through redemption history like Aristarchus, but we do know this. We do know that there are many who are written in the Lamb's book of life and they will be greatly honored and they will be greatly treasured in the kingdom of heaven because they were willing to give up their freedom. They were willing to suffer the laws of all things for the sake of Christ and his glory. May we be bold enough to stand for truth. May we be bold enough to preach the truth. May we not cower or fear under the threat of imprisonment or the threat of persecution that we will back down from telling the truth of the Bible. Aristarchus was a man who was a fellow prisoner with Paul. And he sends greetings to the church. John Mark is also... Described to us now, I think John Mark is probably the most well-known person here. John Mark, if we go back to the book of Acts, was known as the nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas was the original apostle who was sent to Antioch to develop the church, and he was the one who called Paul, Paul, come help me. And from there, they formed the missionary team, and Paul and Barnabas were the original uh, founders of the Pauline mission team. They were the original. They were the, they were the two founders, if you will, the two pillars of the mission team that went out to, um, to the Gentile world and to preach the gospel. And they went on a missionary trip together. That was Paul's first missionary journey. And John Mark, who was Barnabas's nephew, who was also a believer, comes along with them. But something went wrong. We know in Acts chapter 15, after the Jerusalem council, Paul and Barnabas got into a big fight. And they got into a big fight and they split up. It was the greatest split up in church history. The first great split. Two men who loved each other, who, who, who encouraged each other, who worked together, and they had a breakup. And that just goes to show you that even among godly men and women, you can have some vicious breakups. Church splits are nothing new. Uh, breakups among the church are nothing new. But it's, what's important is that you don't stay in that state, but that you're reconciled. And see, there was a dispute. Acts 15.36 says this. I want to give you the background from the book of Acts. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with, not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and he sailed away to Cyprus. The cause of the division between the two of them was Mark. 
Why? Because in their first missionary journey, we'll assume that Mark was a young man, probably, and according to the word is used to describe him, probably in his late teens, early 20s. And let's be realistic. You're on the mission field. It's no fun. This isn't a tour of Jerusalem to, to see the religious sites. This is going into hostile territory. You're going into lands where people are devout pagans and you're telling them to turn from their paganism and become Christians. There's persecution. There's hostility. There's, there's dangers. There's, there's all kinds of, of, of challenges when you face when you're a missionary. And the truth is, Mark couldn't handle it. He gave up. He withdrew. He went back home. There's a lot of people who do that. There's a lot of people who say, I want to be a missionary. And they go to the mission field. And I got to tell you, it's about 80% the failure rate of people that come home and say, I can't do it. So we don't look at John Mark in a way and say, well, he's a bad guy. But Paul was very zealous for the work. And he didn't have time or tolerance for people who weren't, who weren't up to snuff. And so Paul says, I'm not taking him with me, Bar- uh, Barnabas. Barnabas says, okay, I'm out. I'm taking John Mark. Blood is thicker than water. And so they split. The amazing thing here is that here is Paul now, later in his life, an older man, and he sends John Mark, he sends greetings from John Mark, who is with him. He says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, sends greetings concerning whom you have received instructions, and if he comes to you, welcome him. Now Paul could say of Mark, I, he's sending you instructions. I want you to listen to him and welcome him. Not only that, but later on, he'll tell uh, Timothy in, his, in, his, um, in, his, in the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he'll say, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. This is when Paul was languishing in, in prison. This was his second imprisonment. He was about to be beheaded. His life was over. He said, I finished the race. I fought the good fight. And he says, bring Mark to me. He's very useful to me. Now imagine, at one point, Paul was willing to, to cut ties with his best friend over Mark. Now he says, bring Mark to me. He's very useful. Shows two things. Number one, it shows the maturity of Mark. Mark had grown and developed into a mature believer. But it also shows the grace of Paul. And Paul realized the error of his own ways. Maybe he said, I was too harsh when I was at that point in my life. I should have been more gracious. The hope is that as you grow as a Christian, two things will happen. That that as you develop as a Christian, you'll become more mature, more responsible, more committed. And on the flip side, as we get older in Christ, we become more gracious, more humble, more forgiving, and more tolerant. When I was a young Christian, I was very zealous and I used to fight and argue with nobody. I had zero tolerance for anyone who didn't see things my way. They call that the cage stage. I was obnoxious. I was offensive. And I was not a nice guy. I was an arrogant, pompous fool. But as I've gotten older, I've learned to be more gracious. When people say things that I don't agree with, I'm not quick to correct them and say, well, let me tell you something. You're wrong. Let me show you in the Bible where you're wrong. You could accomplish more over time by being gracious, by being patient. There are a lot of people who may be useful to us in the kingdom if we don't chase them away with our arrogance. And then Paul brings up Justice, who is Jesus. We know nothing about him. 
other than he's a fellow Jew. And Paul says, these are the only Jews that are with me and they are refreshing to me. They are, they are those who comfort me. They are those who, who are a great comfort to me. Now, it's important because Paul, remember, most Jews have rejected him by this point in his life. He's been thrown in prison. To know that there's still a few of his countrymen that are standing with him, Paul loves his Jewish brothers. He loves the Jewish people. It grieves him that they don't believe in Christ. Romans 9 shows us that. And so he's comforted by the support of his Jewish brethren. Finally, the last three, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. I'm going to go through this. I'm going to run through this quickly because Epaphras we've already been introduced to in chapter 1. And from what we learned early in Colossians, Epaphras is the pastor of the church in Colossae. He is the pastor. And the whole idea was that Epaphras had went back to uh, Caesarea to seek Paul out and to seek counsel and advice on how to deal with the problems in the church of Colossae. There were theological problems, the Colossian heresy, whatever you want to call it, that were taking place. And Paul addresses that in this letter. Paul sends this letter back and Epaphras is staying with him. He's sending this letter back to address the heresies in Colossae. But Paul wants to send greetings also from Epaphras because Epaphras loves this church. He's the pastor of the church. And what does he say about Epaphras? He says pretty much what we want to hear. He's one of you. He's a Colossian, but he's a servant of Christ Jesus. And notice, he's struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may indeed stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This is a man who cares about his flock and he's struggling. The word struggle there is agonizomai in Greek and it means to agonize. Paul is agonizing, I mean, Paphras is agonizing in prayer with Paul for the Colossian church. He's concerned that the church is going off the rails. He's concerned that there's imposters there that are leading people astray, that there's divisions, that there's false ideas of the gospel, false ideas of who Christ is. And he's concerned and he's, he's moved and he's agonizing and struggling and wrestling in prayer for this church. He doesn't want to see it lost. That's a man who cares about his flock. What did Jesus say the you know, the shepherd is a hireling, right? They don't care what happens to the sheep, but the good shepherd knows his sheep by name. There are many hirelings in the kingdom of God. There are many hirelings who, who, and a hireling is what? Someone who just works for wages, but doesn't care for the sheep, doesn't agonize for the sheep, doesn't struggle in prayer for the sheep. I think Epaphras is just like Paul. What was his main desire? that they would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. The desire of any good pastor is that the congregation would be mature and stand firm in their faith and assurance of the Lord. Like Paul says in his letter to Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 12 to 14, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is what pastors are given for, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
I hope that the members of Grace and Truth Church are firm enough and assured enough and mature enough that every time some new trend or, or new uh, uh, um, something comes into the church, a new book or a new, new idea, you're not moved like a boat in the ocean with no sail, but you're firm on the ground, firm on the solid rock, not moved by every cunning wind of doctrine. Not only that, but he's praying on behalf of not just Colossae, but the churches in Laodicea, Hierapolis. And this tells me that, that Epaphras is probably the overseer of all three of those churches. He's the bishop of those three churches. Second to last is the beloved Luke, the beloved physician. And um, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke needs no introduction. We know Luke, Dr. Luke, pens the Gospel of Luke. He pens the book of Acts. He is Paul's companion. He is part of a great part of Paul's ministry team. He's Paul's personal doctor. I mean, how much better you have a personal doctor taking care of you along your way. And remember, Paul got stoned half to death. He's got an eye infirmity. And who knows what other physical infirmities. He, he needs a doctor to tend to him. And Luke, a Gentile, gets converted and God uses him not only to be one of Paul's missionary team, but to be someone who's a physician, but he's a historian. You know, if you read the book of, of, of Luke and Acts, the introductions, uh, Luke goes out of his way to say that he went through great uh, a work to get very accurate details to present to us an accurate historical narrative of the work of Christ and the work in the book of Acts. He's an intelligent man. This is a highly intelligent man. God has a purpose for him too. And lastly is Demas. Last but not least. Paul doesn't say anything about Demas. He's not beloved. He's not faithful. He's not physician. He's not struggling in prayer. He's not imprisoned. Nothing about him. Who is Demas? We know he's part of Paul's ministry team. He's a, he's a player on the team, but is he a team player? Later in Philemon, he also lists Demas as part of the ministry team. But in that same passage I read earlier about Mark, the end of Paul's life when he was in his second imprisonment about to be beheaded, this was the darkest hour of Paul's life. This is when Nero was launching a full-blown persecution on the church. Paul was an old man. He was at the end of the road. He was not getting out of prison by the time he writes 2 Timothy. It was the last letter he would write. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4. I want you to read with me in verse 9. These are his final words. He's languishing now. He's, now he's really suffering. He says to Timothy in verse 9, first, 2 Timothy 4, 9, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he's very useful to me for ministry. Going back to verse 10. 
where Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's all we know about Demas. We know about Demas that he's a deserter. And that when the heat turned up, he says, I love this world more than I love Christ. I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to jail. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of I'm tired of being lampooned everywhere I go. I'm tired of being alienated. I'm tired of people making fun of me. I'm tired of getting chased from one town to the other. I'm tired of risking going to jail. You go ahead, Paul. You do your thing. I'm going back to Thessalonica, and I'm going to live my life. I love this world. And maybe he didn't use those words, but Paul says that that was exactly what underscored his problem. Perhaps that's why he never said anything good about him. Paul may have already saw a drifting away from the faith. Demas is one of many who would come after him. Just like we have team players in the church that represent all different aspects, there's always going to be the person who's on the team who's not a team player. There's always going to be the person that when the ship is sinking, they're going to be the first to jump off the boat and get in the life raft and save themselves. Remember watching that movie, Titanic? You remember the people who said, uh, you know, let all the poor people drown. I'm getting in the boat. I'm saving myself. That was Demas. You see, when the tensions between the world and Christianity become intense, there are always going to be those who choose the path of least resistance. Being a Christian is not easy. Being a Christian at times can be very challenging. Being a Christian calls us to die to self. Being a Christian calls us to love Christ more than anything else in this life. Being a Christian calls us to forsake sins that we enjoy and to take more pleasure in the satisfaction of Christ. But what happens is when the world becomes more attractive than Christianity, people's love, their affection will rise to the surface and they will choose what they want most. Perhaps this is why James said in James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we're talking about the world, we're talking about the world system, the world system and its morals and ethics that are contrary to the word of God, that are contrary to the kingdom of God. And when you want to be friends with that, when you're guilty of spiritual adultery, You know what that means? That means you are to be faithful and single-minded in your purpose to Christ. He's the bridegroom, you're the bride. And when you go off into the world and tramp around with with the the worldliness and the ungodliness, you're, you're guilty of spiritual adultery. It's uncleanness. That's why it warns us in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Hallelujah. I gotta tell you, being a Christian is costly. And when demons found it costs too much, he quit. I gotta tell you, and warn each and every one of you, that we could all be a potential Demas. Flirt with the world today. You're in bed with the world tomorrow. 
We need to stop flirting with the world. We need to repent of those areas where we're getting too affectionate to the things that are going to lead us away from Christ and find our true joy and our true love and true satisfaction in Christ and him alone. Amen. Let me conclude. In these final greetings, we have a a picture, a portrait of the ministry team of Paul, those whom he sends, those who are sending greetings. All in all, Paul is surrounded by godly men who are supporting his ministry and building it. And without them, Paul could not do what he does. And each and every person had a role there. And I want to remind each and every one of you that just as they were all players on the team, they were all team players, we also need to be team players. The success of Grace and Truth Church, the success of our little church depends not on every man out for himself, but depends on the labor, the work, and the commitment of every member, no matter how big your task or how little your task. It means that you need to use your gifts and strengths, whatever God has gifted you for, and serve and do it. You have something valuable to offer the church. You need to find a role where you can make a meaningful contribution and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand our team objective. We are a team and the team has an objective. The objective is to fulfill the Great Commission to preach the gospel to all people, to to glorify and honor God and to make disciples of men. And when we know that's our objective, the personal preferences and the personal stuff goes out the window. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And whatever role he gives us, whether it's small or big, whether our roles change or transfer, it doesn't matter. What matters is we serve Christ. And thirdly, be faithful. Whatever God calls you to do, do it well. As I said earlier, it's not your ability that matters. It's your reliability. Are there faithful men and women in grace and truth? And if so, let us step up to the plate. Each man, each woman doing his role or her role in serving Christ to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for the word which has spoken to us. We thank you for the truths that we have understood. We thank you for these men that are listed here. They are written in the annals of scripture to remind us that you used these men in their capacities to serve the kingdom. But also you remind us of the apostasy of a man named Demas. Oh Lord, may we not be like Demas. May we not fall in love with the world and fall away from you. I pray the Lord keep us faithful, keep us steadfast, unmovable, and firm in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.